Welcome to the Compassionate Capitalist Radio Show with host Karen Rands. A compassionate capitalist is someone who invests their money into entrepreneur endeavors to bring innovation to the market and create wealth for all those involved. Karen shares insights and best practices for entrepreneurs to succeed and investors to share in that success without all the risks. And now... So welcome back to the Compassionate Capitalist podcast and video for those that are watching through YouTube. I, uh, this is a a, a great topic, I think, for our audience of uh, investors and entrepreneurs that are seeking to, you know, create wealth through entrepreneurism and investing in successful entrepreneurs. One of the things that seems to have come up a great deal lately in uh, prior podcasts that I've done on panels that I've been sitting in and listening to and entrepreneurs talking about their experience from going to startup and through these initial phases and what is the role of a corporate culture. Uh, you know, our topic specifically today is creating and preserving a corporate culture in this new normal of remote working. But there's, um, how do you get to start it, right? How do you get to the start and why should you as a startup or an early stage company worry about a corporate culture and how is it different from strategy, right? So, and one of the calls I was on recently, um, they were talking about how culture is like breakfast and strategy is like lunch. Okay, so it, it, and the idea being that they're not the same, they're separate, but they're integrated in that a company needs to have both of them, just like a person needs to, you know, to fuel your growth, right? So to fuel your energy through the day, it's, there's, a, there's a way that they, they interact and intersect to create a successful environment for the operation of the company. And so I have a, uh, my guest today, uh, Brett Putter, is unique in his uh, insights into this. I was very excited when uh, an opportunity came across for me to interview him. His uh, book is called Own Your Culture, and uh, he hails here from uh, over across the pond in the UK. So I'll let you say hello, Brett, and then I'll continue introducing you. Uh, So, you know, what's interesting is that um, the, you know, you always want to, one of the things that people, entrepreneurs will ask me is like, well, how do you know, you know, what's the path to go, the best path, you know, practices and sort of like the idea of going through a mindful. So you want to step on the, the footsteps of the person or the company that went before you, right? And so amazingly, perfect timing, that's what Brett has done. He has interviewed the, some of the most successful startup companies and their, and their process. And we're going to learn all about that today and the role of corporate culture and their success And so, and we're going to dig into it a little bit because we do have a new normal, you know, we have this environment that, um, what is, how do you, it's a challenge when you work remote, when most of your interactions are, you know, not in the break room or grabbing a bite and going to lunch together that you're on these virtual calls with each other. And there's a, a, a school of thought that the new work normal, the, the way of the work, we will, you know, offices are never going to be quite the same as they were before. Certain companies will, but a good part of your companies will not even, ever, you know, be back into the offices the way that they had evolved to over time. So let me tell you a little bit about more about Brett. So Brett Putter is an expert in company culture development. He is, he's consulted 
companies and leaders worldwide to help design and develop high and build high performing cultures. He is the CEO of Culture Gene, a culture leadership software and services platform. Uses a he uses a powerful software platform to conduct multi-person workshops in real time to guide the team through a rigorous process to define and embed a corporate culture. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about that. Okay, and so and prior to funding, I mean to founding Culture Gene, Brett spent 16 years as the managing partner of a leading executive search firm based in London, working with startups and high growth companies in the UK, Europe, and the USA. In 2018, he published his first book, Culture Decks, Decoded, and then his second book, Own Your Culture, How to Define, Embed, and Manage Your Corporate Culture, came out in September of 2020. So thank you so much again, Brett, for being on the Compassionate Capitalist Show. Karen, my pleasure. Thanks for that uh, kind introduction. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to uh, digging down deep into culture and uh, how to build it. Okay, great. So let's connect to dots. I always like help our listeners understand how you went from executive recruiting to writing a book about corporate culture, because there must have been some thesis, a question, something that you were just curious about yourself, because when you the the effort it takes to research what you've done and put it all, you know, pen to paper is uh, not something for the lighthearted. So what, so tell us about that journey. Yeah. So I, um, I was running this, an executive search firm in London and typically, you know, we would do, we would work as startups and high growth companies, but I was very lucky about five and a half years ago now to work with three companies almost in a row where the, CEO had a very clear understanding of the culture, and I was asked to find candidates with the right skills and the right experience, et cetera, et cetera, but also candidates with a match with the values of the company. And this, this was a much harder thing to do. It, um, you know, search is hard anyway. Finding good people is hard, but finding good people that match the values was something I'd never done before. And actually the searches, running these searches, the impact that the, the interviews had, the candidates had on the, the, the me and on the client, and then the impact that they had on the business once they were successfully in place was significant. It was huge in comparison to all of these other searches I'd done before. And because there were three in a row, it was like, wow, this is, you know, this is, I need to understand what's going on here. Um, why is this so different? And why are the the searches were harder, but actually the processes were smoother and the candidates joining was, was, was just much easier. Um, and then the impact that they had on the, on the respective businesses they joined was really, really you know, off the charts. So that's where I started studying and researching and understanding how companies, how, how companies define their culture and what they do to do that. And, I'd started interviewing the various leaders I've interviewed and here I am four years, four and a half years later, having written two books and I'm not a very good writer. So um, it's, you know, it is hard work. It's like wading through mud while wrestling an alligator carrying, you know, 24 beers and wanting to hold the beers. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it, it, that was the moment though. The light bulb moment for me really was, those searches and just seeing the radical difference. Okay, we'll get into it a little bit more, but that's really your software that you've created, your platform for this company. You founded, it, it systematizes that process to a certain degree, kind of what you 
what you learned, the, the onboarding? Is it once people are in place and now they're trying to figure out how to get a, corp, a culture in place? Is it or both? Yeah. Yeah. So what what companies will typically come to me and say, um, CEO will say to me, I know culture is important. I've maybe tried to do a couple of things, but it's not landing. Uh, you know, I don't know what to do next. Or I've heard about company culture. I, I got the sense that it's important, but I really don't know where to start. So the software I've built um, replicates my process digitally. And I started this about 18 months ago, fortunately, pre-COVID. And um, so I had the, the ability for, you know, because I was doing most of my workshops in person in the company, you know, fly over to Amsterdam or go up to Germany and, and actually do it in, in, in situ. And um, I realized that I was approached by two remote companies about 18 months ago to do this. And I realized my process wasn't going to work for remote companies. And I just thought it was that it would, it would be an interesting exercise as well. And then we started building the software and it's allowed me to really hit, can, you know, continue to service my clients and to service new clients very effectively. So it's really a, a means of taking a company through a process of understanding their current culture, understanding their aspirational culture, and there's often a huge gap between the two, yeah, understanding yeah. the gap between, and then also then coming together and pulling together what the current and aspirational culture is, and defining that in terms of values and mission and vision. Okay, so let's dig into a little bit about that. And I'm going to use probably the only company that I have the greatest experience with as far as corporate culture. And they are probably one that has struggled, has been um, within pop culture, probably one of the more established perceptions of a culture, but also one that has struggled over time. And that's IBM. So my background was with IBM, right? And so, you know, people like, because I want, what I want to lead you down is to sort of figure out defining that piece of what is current versus aspirational. What is a corporate culture, right? So like a lot of people would think of IBM as like, oh, they're the ones that wore a white shirt and a red tie and it was always the suit. And then when tech companies started coming up and they were all casual, what does it mean to be business casual? And then they went through this whole thing where, oh, we're Six Sigma, we're high quality. And so, you know, that's our whole thing that we're going to do. We're going to be all about quality. And then they went, you know, because they were, had gotten, you know, perception was that they, that old, the old adage that you would never get fired if you bought IBM was being challenged by these newcomers and are not having the best of this, of that, or the other. So then it became Six Sigma. And then it was like, well, we need to have an innovative and creative environment. So we went through all of these exercises where you might remember it, you're kind of in the same, you know, a little bit of the graying hair as I am, but the whole black hat, green hat, blue hat, white hat, where we'd all have these different, oh, are you, you, are you a person that dismisses people's ideas? Do you encourage ideas? Are you a negative Nelly? You know, what are you and, and what do we want to do? And I think we all wanted to be white hats. I don't really remember anymore, but you know, it was, and so we went had go through these kinds of exercises trying to help, cult, you know, do that. So talk about what is, I mean, I know it's a complex topic in a way, but what is, what is a corporate culture? Is it 
how people identify themselves in it? Is it how they communicate with each other, how they accomplish the goals, the top-down communication, or is it like some combination of all of that? At the, like just in general, what is a culture? And then how does that impact not just employee satisfaction, but the productivity of, of an organization? Yeah, so, so the way my preferred definition of, of culture is the way we do things around here. So yes, it encompasses everything you said. And this is, this is the problem with culture. It's actually this amorphous, mainly subconscious, invisible and intangible thing. The best leaders make it visible, conscious, and tangible, and and, and turn it into an asset, a, lev- a, a, a lever for the business. And so, what what I do with my clients is we make culture visible, we make it tangible, and we make it conscious. And the best way to look at that is to think: okay, culture develops over time, where, where and we develop from what we learn is working, and that gets sort of adapted into the way we work around here. But culture is this random combination of good and bad behaviors, habits, norms, principles, procedures, structures, communication styles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And in the early days of a company, the bad is not so extreme because we're all in, you know, it's it's a a small team, 20, 30 people, Um, people are and we previously went in the office, you could, you could learn what was good and acceptable and unacceptable by being in the office through osmosis, through seeing oh, how people sure, behave. And once you got to 30, 20, 30 people, then things maybe started to, the wheels started to come off a little bit because you're hiring outside of your network. You're, the, the, you're also not necessarily as a leader doing all the hiring and the way you used to and you haven't been deliberate about communicating or defining your culture, which means that people are using their own interpretation mm-hmm. of your culture. Yeah. So interp- interpreting your values, they're interpreting your mission and vision in a way that suits them. And so that's where culture can, can go off the rails. Now, in the case of, of a company like IBM, that's a whole lot of many years of, of different cultures and different adaptations, different leaders, different styles turning that into, you know, over time, what turned into be a little bit of a, a, a culture, an environment lacking innovation and lacking creativity and lacking many, many things, actually, if you, if you really dig into it. And sure. reading Lou Gerstner's book many, many years ago was one of those, wow, okay, you did a great job, and then they let the, let the ball drop again. But from my perspective, um, company culture starts with your values and mission and vision. And if you define those well, those become the DNA, particularly the values, because you should hire people who match your values. Mm-hmm. If the people match your values, then you don't really have to worry about you know, what the culture is, because ultimately we value the same things and we will therefore behave in a similar way, which means we have consistency in behavior, which means that we can rely on one another. And so, you know, the, 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 the startup companies that I see as they're starting to accelerate, and if you look at Airbnb, Facebook, WhatsApp, companies like, you know, even, you know, the Googles of the world invested heavily in company culture, because if you don't do that, as you're starting to accelerate and scale, the wheels come off really quickly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's, 
Okay, so let's uh, like a couple of these startups that were on this um, call, you know, they're they're sort of like, um, you know, break it down really simple. But I could see it, you know, when you're in a fast pace of a startup, their you know their thing was, oh, you know, get stuff done, you know, no jerks, right? Which is not really that's sort of a, a, a baseline or something. Cause how does that work into a vision of your thing? You know, like you, are you customer centric or are you innovation or, you know, there seems like there's always these things Well, we're always going to put the customer first or we're going to do, you know, the people will have like companies will have sort of like, well, we're supposed to say something about the customer and we're supposed to say something about dominating markets or delivering this or that. And is it just something on a piece of paper or is it, you know, really something that they can make into their, into their, into their processes? Because like just getting stuff done as this idea, well, do you have the process and procedures and automation to be able to do that? Because then there's this level of frustration if you're just all working hard, you know, everybody can working hard is one thing. So, you know, talk about, cause I know you interviewed how you interviewed, how many companies did you interview before you found the ones that had the message and the success and the things that you were trying to convey in your book? Well, I actually, I actually had to speak to over 500 to wow. be able to interview just over 50. And then how many made the cut for the book out of the 50? So no, those, no, oh, no, it was those, it was those 50 that made those the cut. 50. So yeah. 450 didn't want to be interviewed or they just didn't have the kind of culture that you wanted to advocate. No, it, it, it was more a case of, so I, what I did is I looked at, I would be introduced to a CEO and they'd say, Brett, go speak to Elizabeth. She's running a great company, great culture. And I had a list of questions that really dug down deep into the layers of the onion of company culture. And in most cases, we would talk about values and we would maybe talk about some sort of recognition or reward system. But actually, that's where the conversation would end. They weren't deliberate about embedding it into the leadership team, into the processes, into the functions of the business. They weren't deliberate about managing their culture. And so the 50 companies that I ultimately interviewed, I could, I, you know, I, they, they allowed me to get really deep into the onion of what they were doing with company culture. The other, the other 450 either weren't doing terribly much at all, or it was very superficial what they were doing. And, and the conversation would peter out after about, 10, 15 minutes of a chat with the CEO because they, they go, no, no, we're not doing that. We haven't started doing that yet, that kind of thing, which meant that I would left with my pen hanging and I go, okay, well, let's look for somebody else. And this is actually, this is a, a problem. I, I, I sort of call this a business pandemic of not having defined a well, strong defined culture it means that you're hiring the wrong people. You're you're, you're, you're behaving in ways that is not the way that you claim to be able to behave or you claim you want to behave in, in an environment. And people are, you know, 88%, I think it was, I can't remember now, sorry. What is the number? It's something like 80% of employees are disengaged. Mm -hmm. And they're disengaged because they're working in the wrong place. They're working in the wrong job and they're, you know, they, they, they can't stand it, but they need, it, they need to earn their, their crust of bread. So... My, my needs, you know, only 10% of the companies I spoke to actually had a well-defined culture, which is, which means that the other 90% are really struggling. Okay. So 
Uh, and let's, I want to take a moment here we're about midway through and make sure people know your website because this is fascinating stuff and you have good information on your website about culture and about sort of these processes. And it's culture gene, C-U-L-T-U-R-E-G-E-N-E dot A-I, okay, dot A-I. So that's where you go get more information about the software and these services that Brett offers. But so... Now, okay, so that kind of begs the question, if 90% of the companies out there are not doing culture for real, it's just sort of plaques on the wall or, you know, things like that, or little, you know, IBM used to have those little things that said think, right? That was our big thing, think. And so, you know, would, would the naysayer say, well, see, I can be successful without spending so much time, energy, and effort to create a culture you know, why do I need to go through all of that? Like, what have you been able to quantify the impact? Does it help a company do double digit growth in a year because they've got a well run and, and engaged employees versus a single digit growth? Or, you know, have you, have you been able to come up with any kind of quantitative there is there is a lot of data. A bunch of universities have actually done a lot of work in understanding how culture impacts um, uh, the commercial capabilities of, of, of a business. Um, but actually, if you think about, so success is relative. If you if you want to build a two million dollar business and you're not really interested in growing it, you, you want a lifestyle business, then you know. It, it, that's fine. But if you want to build the next Facebook or the next Google or the next Stripe or the next Airbnb, you will, and you don't invest in your culture, you have a high chance of failure. Every single one of the really great successes over the last 20 years, really, has been, they either, they've either waited a little bit, but from most of them from very early on, have invested heavily in company culture because they understand that it's the one key differentiator. It's the one sustainable competitive advantage that a CEO has complete control over. Wow. CEO yeah. doesn't have control over much else. Yeah. But it's, but, and it, and if you build it properly, it's, it's, it's super sustainable and super effective. So, so yes, there's a lot of data and, and I can point people in the direction of different universities and different reports, but if you, but it's more about which of the companies that you deal with, Apple, the companies that, you know, the Facebook's, I think Facebook's lost their way with their culture recently, but actually to get to where they got to, they invested heavily in their culture. Sure, sure. Well, I think there's also measurements that you may not attribute to culture, but there are, they talk about, you know, work-life balance or employee satisfaction or some of the things you alluded to earlier. But it's like, if you have a lot of turnover, if you have a lot of um, where there's the ratio of sick days to stuff and even just the general productivity, you know, that would be um, measurements of where you don't have an engaged, motivated workforce because, they believe that they're working. Corporate culture is, I would, to me, it's sort of like, it's where we're the team idea, right? Because we're all working towards something together and we feel aligned and respected and, and, um, and engaged in a common goal, but it's the culture that 
not just, you know, gold's not just a stake in the ground. It's the process of, of how you get there. And I, it does the culture is sort of the pave, the pave, you know, the pathway to those goals. Yeah. I, I, the way I look at culture is it's the glue. Um, okay. it's, it's the glue that keeps us together during the good times and the glue that keeps us all rowing in the same direction, sorry, during the bad times and the glue that keeps us all rowing in the same direction at the right speed in the good times. Yeah. So, so it's, it's, it's a, there are some people who really understand how, the, the, how to form culture, but most, you know, they, they, they just do it naturally and they have a very good understanding. They have high EQ and high emotional intelligence and they've got a, um, just a natural understanding. But most people who end up building strong cultures have to, have to go through a weak culture or a dysfunctional culture to be able to understand how to, what a strong and functional culture looks like. So really, if you, if you think about it, um, a lot of the executives today who are building startups have not gone through that. They didn't have five years at IBM to realize what they didn't want or what they did want, but they, they wanted to take bits of this and not bits of that. And so they really are flying blind when it comes to building company culture. Um, but if you think about it as the glue that keeps your people together, then it's then it becomes okay. Oh, it's about people. How do I create an environment where my people can fulfill their potential? How do I create an environment where my people feel that they're in a psychologically safe environment where they can bring trust and transparency and be you know outcomes based? How do I create this environment? And in this particular time right now, during where we're in forced lockdown because of a pandemic, the companies that did not invest in their culture pre-COVID are the ones that I'm seeing really struggling now, struggling yeah. to adapt, struggling to, to, to manage because there isn't that North Star, that isn't that DNA that we're very clear about why we're here. What are we doing here? Why are we in this company apart from our job and just to earn a salary? Right. And that's where I, that's a perfect segue into this idea of, cause like how we, you know, I would think that if you did not have a strong employee loyalty and work ethic and stuff out of motivation, not fear, you know, pre pandemic, and now you're in this remote environment, you know, those that it would be really challenging to have that, to maintain that productivity level and that, that cohesiveness with so many people remote. So <clears throat> what, I mean, I, to me, that will be the big difference. It'll accelerate the decline of some companies and, or the, the plateauing and the ones that are, had, had already been doing the work before will, will sail through or be able to, you know, push on through this, this pandemic. Do you have anything in particular to, um, recommend or best practices for people that are in a remote thing, things that they can do that create, you know, nobody, I, I, people say, Oh, let's do a little social thing, whatever. It's like, when I'm done, I'm done. I don't want to get together with a social call, you know? So what can you do? What, what is something that in a remote world, hopefully we won't be there forever, but what is something that you've seen the best practices of some companies and how they're keeping people aligned and you know engaged their employees yeah, so, so be, because i was building software for um distributed teams i just i decided to study um the best companies at remote 
So I've, I've done a, a, a deep dive into companies like GitLab, GitHub, um, Hotjar, Zapier, Toptel, Buffer, and, and, and many others. And my research demonstrated that there are fundamentally nine best practices that these companies over-index on, that they work harder at than the people, the, the, the leaders who were pre-COVID office-based. And those pre-COVID office-based leaders could be lazy about these areas because the office did it for them. So the office, because there was osmosis, because informal communication happened normally, because you had visibility and you could read the room and you can, you can you know, get a sense of this person being interviewed in front of you, you could be lazy about elements of your culture. And, and that kind, you kind of got away with it, but that's no, no longer available. But what remote companies over index on is they very deliberate about culture from day one because there's none of that osmosis happening. They are, they, they are very, very, very focused on, on communication, not just on you know, moving from synchronous to asynchronous communication, but actually building communication architectures around that. They processize the business. So they, they put in way more process. They are documentation fiends. That's, you know, they, Get, GitLab actually higher. One of their evaluation criteria is your ability to document. So if you're not big on documentation, that company won't hire you. And I, I don't know if you've had a chance but to look at it, but GitLab's company manual is a thing of absolute beauty. It's 8,100 pages long. Oh my it's goodness. On, it's on the internet and every single document is, every page is a live working page. There isn't one redundant piece of information in that whole manual. Wow. Because they do documentation right. And then they work on social connection, once again, really hard because loneliness is the first step towards burnout and mental health issues. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of this coming down the line because previous office-based leaders didn't really have to worry about this. They are very, very, you know, very focused on working in a trust-based environment. They lean towards transparency because if we're transparent, you have nothing to hide. They outcomes based and they work very, very hard on recruitment and onboarding because they, 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 they have to, they, they can't trust their gut instinct in this environment, this digital environment. So that's an overview of what these companies do really, really differently. And it's not easy, but, but every single company that ends up working a knowledge-based company that works in a hybrid environment is going to have to be remote first because you have people who are working remote right in a hybrid environment and those people are ultimately going to end up feeling like second-class citizens mm -hmm. if you don't build the right capabilities in your organization to communicate in a way that matches their needs to 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 you know structure the work in the way that matches their needs they'll just pick up and go once this once this pandemic is over there is going to be huge churn huge chip and productivity is going to fall straight through the floor because we have what I call false productivity now. It's false productivity because people have nowhere to go. They have nothing to do. So they get out of bed and if they're lucky, they walk, walk into another room and they start working, having had a shower and, a, and, and, and breakfast. And then they don't go anywhere for lunch and they work through lunch 
and they work until nine or 10 at night because they don't have anyone else to see or do. I know so somebody like that. <laughs> <laughs> We're all like that at the moment, but it's false productivity. As soon as people can go out and party and go clubbing and travel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that, you know, it, it, when you were talking, it reminded me of, you know, like they don't do the work, right? So like my, uh, you know, I remember the management by walking around approach. <laughs> so if you can't do that, there's, you know, there's uh, so many. So are those managers or those executives that fear people are goofing off when they work remote and they put in the kind of things that are more like big brother watching are you your keyboard strokes and you know those kind of things you know they're sort of the, they're are they the ones that you know are doing it with the management by walking around and because they can't do that because they haven't done the rest of the work they can't trust their employees because they don't you know that seems like that's a that's a disconnect of what you want to do when you're trying to uplift a whole organization to work together a huge disconnect that you, you hit the nail on the head it's an absolute disaster so the problem with micromanagers is micromanagers need to be able to control and they need to see that you're working and so putting any sort of spyware on a computer is just ridiculous because you know you're you're not demonstrating trust this person is going to be is going to be probably clicking on keys just for the sake <laughs> of clicking on keys you know, um, the micromanagers force their people to, to try and demonstrate that they're working, which means that they work longer hours, which means that they're going to burn out sooner. And the remote companies I study, they all, every single one of them leans in towards transparency. They lean in towards trust. And they it's not about the hours worked. It's about the outcome. And it's about defining the process by which you get to the outcome. And then if you can do it, they'll leave you do it. If you have a problem, come and talk to me as your manager and we'll sort it out. But if you don't, I just trust you. I trust you. You're an adult. You will get on with it. Right. Yes. If you have younger employees, you need to be aware that they're not as experienced. They don't have the skills or the resources or the experience. And then you've got to monitor them and you've got to train them. But that's monitoring them in the right way, not monitoring them by spying on them. Right. So, I, you know, I just believe that anybody who's spying on their team, on their on their people, are are going to lose their people, or hire. So, or those people who stay will be substandard. Yeah. Okay, so as we start to sort of wrap up here, I want to make sure we get if there's any of these anecdotes from some of your interviews because. You know, the thing about startups, you talked about it really being important, and it's the thing that creates the trajectory that, that a company will achieve its high results. And we know, because a lot of the companies that I work with, that I do my consulting services with, are the ones that are stuck in this sort of, they're just stuck. They can't scale because they didn't get their next round of capital. And I think, and I'm going to start looking into this, they haven't really figured out how to, how to master a corporate culture that allows them to scale. And so the chaos of a startup, you know, levels out, but they don't really know how to um, move beyond that into like a well-running machine sort of a, of a thing. So 
you know, is there any particular, and this to me is, is really important for you know, the, our audience of entrepreneurs and investors. And, and I, although I didn't really cover corporate culture in my book, Inside Secrets to Angel Investing, what is it that investors should be looking for to know whether a entrepreneur or founder even has an inkling that they need to be putting this together? You know, what, what, what were some of the common traits early on of the companies that you interviewed that might be a, an indicator to investors out there that these companies get it? They may not have been fi- able to figure it out yet, but they, they, are, they, they are striving, they're skating to that puck that's going to be one of these companies that has a good corporate culture that allows it to scale. So you'll, you'll be seeing some things that, that they're starting to do. So they may have done some thinking, depending on how early, they may have done some thinking around their values and their mission and their vision. They may be, they may be trying to um, recognize their team internally when they live those values or when they deliver against those values. Um, they may be measuring elements of it. They may be very aware of engagement, elements of the, the engagement statistics of their business um, from an employee point of view. Really, from if you know, if, if I was an investor now, I would be. You, you do get people with with um, you know that are building cultures that are environments that I wouldn't want to work in. But as long as as long as the leaders know what they're trying to build. In other words, they understand that if I'm trying to build a business that we are going to work 18 hours a day, six days a week, and we are going to crush it, then just be honest about it. That's great. If you're trying to build a business where it's all about the family and we care so much for one another, that's great. Don't lie about one or the other. Don't don't mix them up. So first of all, understand what you're trying to build and what what culture is required. And then demonstrate that to me as an investor. Show me that you are hiring for those people. Show me that you are building systems in your organization that are fulfilling that and creating opportunities. If it is the 18 hours a day, show me that you are aware that you're going to be burning people out really quickly and you're either building capabilities or you're going to be hiring more people really quickly. You've got a different system in place. You know, if it's a family environment, then show me that you know how to transition from family to a little bit more accountability, because if we're growing a big business, we got to go from love and cuddles to accountability <laughs> at some stage, and balancing that out is really important. So, from my point of view, I would, if I was, if I was a, a more regular investor than the, the sort of semi-part-time angel investor that I've been over the years, um, I would only invest in in leaders that I thought had a high EQ and were doing something about their culture. So I could see that they understood there was value here. You know, the the culture is, as I said earlier, the one sustainable competitive advantage that a CEO has complete control over. It's more important than anything else in the business, actually. So if you're on your way to understanding that, then I think, okay, cool, I can help you. I can help you with product advice, with marketing advice, and I can bring to bear the culture stuff as well. That's great. All right. So uh, anything else you would like to add? I think that we covered the topic. Did there's anything I, I didn't I think, think we, to ask? We, we've covered the topic, but you and I could probably spend another five hours digging deeper and deeper. No, just if, uh, if people want to, um, uh, if people want to really get an understanding of, of how to build a culture tactically, 
then my, my recent book, Own Your Culture, is the first place to start because, as you, as you mentioned, I've interviewed those 50 companies. Um, there are examples in every chapter of what uh, a company like Imasis um, in the U.S. does to build trust, what a company like Hotjar does to recruit remotely, what companies like Thread do to start uh, continuous development and personal development from the interview process. There are tons and tons of examples on, in every chapter on how to really get your culture going. That's great. Yeah, I would, golly, I would think that every incubator and accelerator out there would have it be some kind of required reading for companies that are, that if the CEO or the founder is really, truly committed to, you know, that trajectory of a highly successful company. So that's really good. I can't wait to get my hands on it. So there's links within your, your website. And again, everybody, that is culturegene.ai, G-E-N-E at the end, like DNA, the culture gene. Um, you could, there's links there for them to go and get the book and get excerpts and things like that. So there you go, exactly. folks. That's what you need to do. All right, Brett, thank you so very much for joining me again on the Compassionate Capitalist Show. And I look forward to uh, staying in touch with you. And, uh, and you know, hopefully if you ever get back over here in Atlanta, maybe or over to the East Coast, maybe we'll show up at a conference together. And, uh, and that would be great. I can't wait to get on an airplane. And, and, and I love flying. I don't know. I, I, I can't wait to get on a plane and just... Although flying into flying into some of the U.S. airports is is, is not the is not uh, going through that uh, border control is not that easy. But apart <laughs> from that, once you're through, it's bliss. Um, love love your country and 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 love the both coasts. But uh, if I if I'm on that side of the neck of the woods or if you're in mine, uh, definitely be great to meet up and have a chat. Yes, absolutely. Okay, with that, everybody, thank you for tuning in. Please uh, again. Uh, Give us a review, share it with people, share it with the startups out there, share it with the investors out there that you know, because this is an important topic and onwards and upwards. Thank you for listening to the Compassionate Capitalist Podcast Radio, where we encourage individual investment in entrepreneurs to create generational wealth and best practices for small businesses to succeed. Help us spread the word about compassionate capitalism by sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues. The Compassionate Capitalist Podcast is available on most podcast platforms, including iTunes, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and many more. In production for over 10 years, there are over 180 episodes available for your listening and educational pleasure. With over 130,000 downloads, this podcast is rapidly becoming the top podcast for investors and entrepreneurs to get the information they need to create generational wealth through entrepreneurism. This podcast is brought to you by the Business Power Tools, which offers an online collaborative environment for leadership teams to prepare business plans, marketing strategies, financial modeling needed to attract capital and scale a business. Also, Lindio as a entrepreneur's resource portal providing access to dozens of lenders offering short-term and long-term debt to help business owners manage their financial cash flow and growth capital needs. BizX, creating affordable advertising resources and other tools for entrepreneurs to succeed and 
create awareness and trust with their customer base. And Launch Funding Network, part of Kigran Capital Holdings, is a network of hundreds of angel investors, investor clubs and networks, venture capital firms, private equity funds, family offices, investment bankers, and lenders. Please visit karenrands.co to learn more about the Launch Funding Network and our sponsors and to sign up to get our Compassionate Capitalist Coffee Break and learn more about how we can help you succeed.